0: Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of The Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, use, or think about AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I am your host, Daniel Bashir, And in this episode, I am excited to be interviewing Professor Christopher Manning. Chris is the director of the Stanford AI Lab, and an associate director of the Stanford Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence Institute. Chris is an ACM fellow, a AAAI fellow, and past president of the ACL. His work currently focuses on applying deep learning to natural language processing. His work has included tree recursive neural networks, GLOVE, neural machine translation, and computational linguistic approaches to parsing among other topics. This was an incredibly fun interview for me. I feel like it could have easily gone much longer, but we only had a bit over an hour. I think Chris's background and research is incredibly fascinating. And if you're interested in anything we talked about today, there are many, many rabbit holes for you to dive into. One particular area we didn't get to spend too much time on that, I thought was pretty fascinating was Neurosymbolic Systems. Some of Chris's work in this area includes memory attention composition cells, and neural state machines. You can find these as well as a lot of other interesting papers to dig into on his Google Scholar. And I'll also make sure to include links to some of the papers I read in preparation for this interview in the episode notes. If you're not already subscribed to the Gradient on Substack, or wherever you're listening to this podcast, just hit that subscribe button and you'll receive a notification whenever we have a new episode. And as always, your ratings and reviews are incredibly helpful for us. If you've been enjoying the show, we'd so appreciate it if you'd leave us a rating wherever you're listening to this. But without further delay, here is Chris Manning. So I I guess I'd like to begin this episode where we always do with our guests, which is to ask how you got into AI in the first place.
1: Okay. Um, So in some sense, I think it's fair to say that I ended up in AI, that it wasn't really that in the first instance I got into AI. So really, my background is in some sense as a computational linguist someone interested in the intersection between human languages, linguistics, and computer science. So I really started off there, and then I got into machine learning because I was interested in human language acquisition, and that was related to learning. Um, so it seemed um, good to start learning about something about machine learning that was then burgeoning as a field. But you know, in the early days, I just wasn't an AI person, that wasn't my background. So, you know, I never did an artificial intelligence introduction course in my life. And in general, um, didn't do um, sort of the range of stuff that in the days when I was a student, knowledge representation, reasoning, and things like that dominated AI. And I, you know, never studied any of that, sort of essentially the things that I was studying. were linguistics and
0: machine learning. Mm-hmm. Right. And you did your, your MS and PhD in linguistics. And I remember you also were, that was one of your majors as an undergrad, correct? Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. Strictly, um, yeah, it's not an MS when you're in linguistics. Um, That's fair. <laughs> it's an MA. Um, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. So I guess to maybe... Follow on to the how you got into AI question, since that was by way of linguistics. What was it about linguistics itself that attracted you to the field?
1: So I guess going back to when I was younger, even, you know, first off in high school, human language just seemed a fascinating thing to me. I mean, you know, there are lots of things that you can find fascinating in the world. I'm not going to claim that it's the only fascinating thing in the world. But, I mean, human language is just this incredible thing that somehow humans over time presumably developed this amazing communication system and, you know, all parts of it as to how humans managed to you know, produce it in real time, right? We speak sentences sort of word by word as we go and we haven't really decided where they're ending at the time we start them. We manage to understand this stuff coming very rapidly into our ears and sort of perhaps most amazingly of all um, little kids with amazing alacrity managed to um, acquire these um, human languages from the people around them. So that just... Really interested me and other aspects of linguistics as to how different languages varied and things like that. Um, So that was something I sort of just thought was interesting. So actually, yeah, when I was an undergrad, I started, you know, intro linguistics my first um, semester.
0: Yeah, and I know you've spoken about the particular phenomenon of child language acquisition right how children go so quickly to picking up what i guess would described as you know this recursive structure of of language and that being a really interesting growth as opposed to if we look at today's transformers and things like that that just have to look at these massive corpora of text and some of the later work of yours we'll we'll discuss I know you observe some really interesting facets of language that they seem to pick up, but it doesn't seem nearly as efficient as something like a child. I'm curious how you think about that. I mean, I think that's right. And I think that
1: that's a remaining challenge for machine learning, that humans have an ability to extract signal and learn from things in their environment, such as um, hearing some language that just still seems an order of magnitude better than what our current machine learning algorithms can do. So, yes, it's absolutely amazing what modern deep learning systems like GPT-3 or all those other models, there are many other ones now around, um, can achieve. But, you know, they're being trained on billions of words of text, whereas, you know, kids have become pretty competent language speakers when they've been exposed to tens of millions of words of text. So there's sort of orders of magnitude difference there. Now, of course, it's a little bit complex, right? I mean, although things are now changing um, with multimodal foundation models, but for something like GPT-3 or various other models of that sort, Lambda, OPT, you know, all of those models. I mean, that for the text-only models, to some extent, they're compensating for the lack of any other kind of input signal by taking advantage of at least seeing billions of words of text, whereas um, little kids in normal circumstances do have this video signal that's coming in continuously as well. And that obviously helps with learning and other things help as well. I mean, it's been in child language acquisition and in general, child learning and general interaction with the caregiver is clearly an enormous enabler of language and in general, child learning. And it's sort of very well known that simple passive observation doesn't give you the same ability to learn as interaction with the caregiver. And well, something like our large language models, well, they're simply passive observers of data.
0: Yeah, that passive observation and also the distinguishing the fact that the large language models accepting, you know, multimodal ones like Clip and so on are really only exposed to language is a really interesting point and something I was thinking about at the beginning of what you said there. Because in a very real sense, as you pointed out, child language acquisition my acquisition of language that's aided by all these other senses I have, right? And that language is in some sense grounded in my experience of the world. And you can almost, in the reverse sense, activate that very real experience, that grounding by means of language alone, but it kind of had to have that experience in the first place. And it seems to me like you've got a language model that is purely trained on text and does not have that kind of back and forth, right, between the language and this groundedness in the real world. So perhaps there's a lot of efficiency, something very real there that you're kind of losing just with the, I suppose, training on corpora of text alone.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. That getting um, both the multimodal input, the ability to ground between language and the world, and I think the interactional. Um, part of doing things together with other human beings who use, you know, many signals, right, that human gaze is very important, right, that often points out objects under discussion. So there's a lot of extra information that is helping learning. And, you know, I think that for those reasons, you know, something that we should um, really be working on these days is much, much more work on grounded language learning, where we are building, um, you know, perhaps artificial environments, not the real world, but multimodal environments where we can study learning. Um, so that's something I'd really encourage. But you know, there is a lot of debate here, and there's a lot of complexity. I mean, you know, so two other points I could make. Um, you know, what one is that you know. It's very easy to say, oh, yes, we should be doing grounded language learning. Um, But, you know, it's complex and it's actually difficult um, to get right and to do. Right. So people have been saying that for decades. Right. So around the turn of the millennium, Luke Steele's a um, researcher in Paris. You know, he was arguing strongly. Everyone should be doing grounded language learning. That's obviously right. Um and you know in some sense yeah he was right um but you know the truth is that um, large collections of text have just provided a very easy and effective entree point for us building big computational systems. So if you think of the great language technologies that we have these days, um, so that we have things like machine translation systems that really work pretty well now, we have question answering systems, you know, really All of the big advances in language technology of the last couple of decades have come from collecting big piles of text and building text-only systems. They haven't come from people trying to do grounded language learning.
0: Yeah, I suppose to speak to that complexity, there's one recent example that really strikes me, actually, and I think it was the difference between... Some recent multimodal models, specifically, I was thinking about Dolly 2 and Imogen. And the fact that Imogen seems to get better photorealism than Dolly 2 was really interesting to me. And I think it's because Dolly 2 has a text encoder, and it's in some sense been pre-trained using this clip process of, just for anybody who may not have dug into the details, this contrastive learning between image embeddings and text embeddings. And in some sense, you could interpret that as like my text encoding is also including some information about the image and knows something about what this text looks like. But in Imogen, they just had this T5 pre-trained text model. And somehow that was able to get an even better image generation model. And that just really struck me because also to what you're saying, the entry point is one facet but also just looking at okay we had this smart teaming, maybe relatively simple procedure of infusing our text encodings with some information about the visual world and we were able to supersede that to do even better with just pure text encoding alone which was really fascinating to me and i don't know if that's um something that strikes you as well or that you think about yeah
1: absolutely i uh... agree with that. I think that that was a fascinating result. Um, And yeah, so, um, well, you've described it pretty well, but yeah, so, um, you know, DALI um, does pretty good um, language understanding in a number of ways and shows effective multimodal learning. But then, you know, it's not so great in quite a few parts of sort of language understanding and sort of then connecting between language and what's in the world faithfully. You know, if you mention objects, they appear, but if you start describing more complex scenes, a lot of the sort of language understanding and the relational knowledge appears to just not be there. Um, And so then it was sort of just super interesting that, Um, The Google researchers showed how by sort of taking this, you know, model that was trained only from text and combining it um, with a sort of neural generative image system that they could produce um, much better results. Um, I'm not sure how you meant to pronounce the name of that model. I'd, I'd sort of thought to myself that they maybe hoped it should be pronounced Imagine, but I've, mm. I've never actually spoken to the authors about it, so I don't know actually um, what the right answer is as to whether it's Imogen or Imagine, one of the two, I guess. Um, but one way or the other, I mean, this actually relates to something that has been debated quite a bit, Um, in the natural language processing, but also, you know, going off into the linguistics philosophy of language communities. Um, So in recent work, um, one prominent paper um, is the paper by um, Emily Bendra and Alex Kohler um, from a couple of years ago in ACL. And they wanted to argue for a a fairly traditional position about um, the sort of grounding of language where you have um, words. This is sort of the Saussurian position that goes back to the early 20th century, of that you have words of the sign and that they signify something in the world. And meaning comes from the mapping between the sign to what is signified. And so they argue for a very strong position that because a model, there's a text only model, whether it's um, GPT-3 or the one that was used um, in Imogen, um, since the language model is trained only on a whole lot of words It has no meaning, no semantics, no understanding whatsoever. All it's doing is sort of learning patterns of word sequences and generating more words that come after some other words. It's completely meaning, understanding, semantics free. Um, That's not a position that I accept. And I sort of wrote a little bit about this in my recent um, Daedalus article. I think we have to accept that meaning can arise between connections, between symbols in various ways. One form of connection is from a symbol, a word, to its referent in the real world. But you also have connections between symbols and other symbols in um, textual discourse. And I think this... We see this sort of everywhere. We see this um, when talking about more abstract things. I mean, lots of the things that we talk about as abstractions, they have no physical form to point to, right? That, you know, a lot of the stuff that we're dealing with in um, machine learning all of the time, right? I sort of can't point you at. Um, okay, here's a VAE or, uh, you know, look, here's um, um, backpropagation, right? They're sort of concepts that we have and we've sort of learned about from symbols. And, I mean, another place you can think about this that I think is interesting is just when you're, you know, hearing about things going on in another part of the world or in another culture, you can be explained about foodstuffs or um, things that happen at a wedding ceremony or whatever it is. And, you know, none of this stuff have you seen. You have no physical grounding for it whatsoever. But the person, you know, explains connections and functions and roles. And I would argue strongly that you develop meanings for those symbols that you're being told about. And so that, and that, is, and so coming back to imagine, well, that's exactly what you seem to see. That actually, because of this huge language-only model, has been is a much bigger, better language-only model. That it actually has a far better semantics understanding of language in the world. And so, when you simply hook it up to uh, a neural image generation system as they did, okay, and do some further training. But you essentially hook it up. Um, It's showing much greater faithfulness of turning languages into images.
0: Yeah. So we have jumped forward in time here, but I did want to linger on this point you were making, about not accepting the semantic free picture of what these language models are doing, because I think the point you're bringing out there is really fascinating, just that meaning in language is not necessarily intrinsically tied to this groundedness in the world. And I feel like I also kind of come at this question from some different frameworks. And in metaphysics, there's a lot of people who describe, I think, the way in which we construct knowledge in different ways and in some sense you might say that on some views we are almost pre-trained as it were with inputs from the beginning right i have some experience of the world and then i can go from there and make syllogisms and establish new knowledge and in other senses you might say that I can wrestle out new knowledge purely from the realm of abstraction, say in areas like geometry. And there's different views, I suppose, on whether this is possible or how exactly this comes about. But that seemed to be an interesting connection for me when you were speaking about this idea of my perhaps being able to construct a new composition of things I've experienced in the world, or a new composition of just concepts existing in my mind. And that composition can be created, can be activated within me by, as you kind of pointed out, maybe a person from another culture explaining some things um, in terms that, you know, maybe I can understand saying, you know, we have this in my culture, it looks like this set of things that you might be aware of. And that's something I can just put together in my mind, and maybe it doesn't mean the exact same thing to me as it means to the speaker of those words, but at the very least, I can construct this knowledge, this idea that is entirely new for me, which um, I thought was just kind of of a fascinating point you made.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. And so absolutely. Well, so I'm definitely not a philosopher and these are difficult questions, many of which have been debated for centuries. Um, and, you know, I'd even say, I'm not sure I really know what the full answer is. So, I mean, clearly for little kids, um, you know, experiencing and manipulating the physical world is incredibly important for them to start to to learn, right? You know, at least in the modern Western world, that's when you have, you know, the kid on the floor with their blocks and things that they can knock over and wrap around themselves. I mean, that's incredibly important. Um, And, um, human beings are sentient in the sense that they feel things. And so, um, this embodiment and sort of groundedness in the physical world is clearly extremely important to being human and bootstrapping learning. And so, you know, I certainly at least want to say that, you know, as human beings move on, that we can, you know, move beyond that. And then there's lots of stuff we learn and lots of meaning we acquire. Purely in sort of the ethereal world of talk and symbols and looking at math textbooks and whatever else it is, and that stuff is then no longer um, learning that being dependent on you know physical grounding. the The thing that's harder to have a good position on is well, could we? How far could we really get without the first part? Because I mean, to some extent. Um, when someone, you know, is explaining to me um, about, you know, some food that they ate wherever it was, right, something in, you know, India or something in Colombia, wherever they were, right, they're likely to partly be using metaphors to connect it to things that I have seen in the physical world in other places, right, Um, and so, you know, it then comes down to questions of, well, if we'd never tasted something sweet in our life, um, what kind of a sense could we get of someone describing um, a sweet dessert food?
0: Yeah, that's very much like the, I suppose, thought experiment, right? When Mary saw the color red, where it's like, okay, maybe she knows everything about how the color red works in terms of wavelengths and the way it hits the eyes and all of that. But then we have this question, when she experiences the color red for the first time, finally, that she actually learn something new? And that, I suppose I have my own intuitions on it, and I think most people do, but it is very hard to have a 100% certain position on a lot of these questions. I think we spend a really long time on this fascinating set of questions, and I do actually kind of want to keep this as a through line, because I think that there's a really interesting discussion here that can inform some of the further discussion on maybe NLP and language alone. And so I'd like to jump back in time a little bit just to talk about what sorts of problems you were working on precisely during your PhD in linguistics and what you were interested in at the time. Um,
1: So certainly for doing a PhD, um, what I was primarily interested in was Getting into natural language processing or computational linguistics. So, um, I'm Australian. So, you know, why I came to the US in the first place was really at, you know, this was sort of 1989, 90 period, thinking about this. You know, there was really um, nothing you could do in Australia for um, natural language processing. And so it seemed like, oh, what I maybe should do is. Go to um, grad school in the US and be able to um, learn something about this. Um, And, you know, um, NLP AI just, you know, in around 1990 time just wasn't like it is today, a sort of big burgeoning field, right? It was pretty small and you know, in particular um, for NLP, you know, there are a few places that had various things, but, you know, a lot of places had just about nothing. And, you know, so it wasn't even then clear whether I was going to be, you know, in some places I applied to CS PhDs and some places I applied um, to linguistics PhDs. And, well, I ended up at Stanford in the linguistics PhD program. And, you know, Stanford had produced a number of, Um, people who worked in computational linguistics but it was a sort of a funny situation actually because at that time there was no one in computer science that worked in NLP. I mean there actually had been decades earlier um, but not around um, the early 90s and although a kind of a number of computational linguists um, had come out of the linguistics department. It wasn't really because of what happened in the linguistics department. It was because um, around Stanford that there were a number of companies or institutes that were actively involved in doing computational linguistics. Um, and, you know, they're, they're different, different places to the ones that dominate today, um, but there was... Um, SRI, um, there was Xerox Park. there was Hewlett-Packard, um, that they had um, groups doing computational linguistics. And so in some sense, I had a sort of a two-part life as a grad student that was sort of split between um, linguistics PhD at Stanford and doing computational linguistics things. Um, for me, it was at Xerox Park.
0: Can you tell me a little bit about how your experience of the academic life of a PhD, so doing linguistics at Stanford, maybe differed from what was going on at Xerox Park. if you felt there was a significant difference. I mean, there's definitely a significant difference just in
1: subject matter. So, you know, for, for the linguistics PhD, um, it was studying, you know, different areas of linguistics. So, you know, syntax, structure of human languages, language semantics, meaning, phonology, sound systems um, that... Um, as well as things like language acquisitions, psycholinguistics, right? There's sort of a general linguistics of sort of the science of how languages work and how they vary. And, you know, that was all stuff that I was interested in, right? So that I'd you know as an undergrad i'd been majorly interested in linguistics so you know i had no objection whatsoever um to learning a lot more about linguistics and indeed my phd thesis um, was linguistics linguistics it wasn't a computational phd at all um but um for the what I then saw at Xerox Park, you know, really, I saw two very different things there. Um, and that was sort of very formative, actually. Um, so, you know, for the job I was initially hired into, that was um, traditional NLP. So, you know, NLP, in some sense, started in the 50s with work on machine translation. Um, but, you know, it grew, with the symbolic um, knowledge-based AI of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, where people were building rule-based systems so that you're building explicit lexicons, grammars, hand-built parsers, and building up um, systems that sort of did translations in some sense, you know, human languages are different, but in some sense not so different to what you're doing for programming language compilers of how you're sort of parsing up um, the inputs and you're turning them into a sort of an abstract, well, I guess they often call it abstract syntax trees for compilers. But then you're putting on the to those the sort of procedural attachments that give the meaning of things, which then will become the sort of code that comes out of your compiler or is your semantic representation. So hand-built NLP systems. And so that was what I was really um, hired to work on. But around that time was sort of when digital text was first becoming available. So this was still um, just prior to the start of the World Wide Web, right? But um, it started to be the case that you could now get largish amounts of text, things like, you know, years of newspapers or years of court proceedings or parliamentary proceedings as text. Um, and, you know... At that point, sort of, it re- this was really only available at companies because they were the people that had enough hard drive space that you could store things like this. Um, so in basically all of the early work on this sort of empirical NLP happened um, at company research centres, just as some people, you know, think a lot of stuff is happening at companies now. Um, and so there was a small group at Park. really, it was... So I've only sort of three researchers there and a couple of people involved um, that were sort of various students at Stanford um, who were interested in this new approach, which was at that time often sort of referred to as corpus-based natural language processing um, and later statistical natural language processing of, well, um, can you take, uh, you know, a lot of text and do something interesting and natural language processing understanding with that and you know that just seemed to me fascinating and clearly what should be being done and just sort of a new empirical way to ground things and start to apply machine learning so i sort of um dug quickly into doing that and you know in these days in those days what we were doing was sort of really incredibly simple right it was you know, you weren't doing much more than counting stuff that occurred in patterns, and, um, you know, corpora. But because it was the first time that people really had these large collections of text that you could run through computers, you know, even kind of getting sort of very simple Um, statistics or very simple models like Naive Bayes models was just super exciting um, because it hadn't been done before and you could already show that you could do interesting things with classifying texts or predicting parts of speech or words on the basis of this.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to look at the, the shift that was seeming to occur at the time you articulated the move towards corpus-based learning. And I know that's reflected in some of your own work. You referenced the automatic acquisition of a large subcategorization dictionary from corpora paper. And there's a lot of other interesting stuff around this period. I know after your PhD, you worked on this probabilistic parsing using left-corner language models. And one thing that kind of stuck out to me in in looking at this paper, um, there was this problem that maybe the way I articulated it to myself was Our current models don't quite capture what's observed in language empirically right we have these formalisms about grammar about the way language works but when you and i are speaking colloquially we don't always obey those those formalisms and so perhaps the answer here is let's come up with a slightly better model or formalism or set of rules and also a little bit later i think after this paper in your 1999 book, Foundations of Statistical NLP, you discussed the rationalist and empiricist schools. Could you tell me a little bit about the state of the debate at that time with these rationalist and empiricist schools and perhaps how it weighed on the ways people were doing NLP at that time? I imagine, of course, the empiricist floating towards, you know, corpus-based learning and things like that. But if you could tell me a little bit about um how that may be mapped onto your own work. That would be really interesting. Sure. Yeah. So um
1: so for work from the sixties, seventies and eighties, you know, there was lots of interesting natural language processing work that was done. And a lot of it was quite connected to and strongly influenced by work that was also taking place in linguistics where people were building up sort of formalisms for um syntactic structure which were um you know perhaps not exactly not only so sort of strictly sort of rule-based but sort of based in logics of the same ways that were being used for knowledge representation and reasoning then. But, you know, that was able to give quite, you know, deep accounts of the grammars of languages and how you could kind of construct meanings of sentences by semantic compositions of the pieces of sentences. You know, elegant, insightful and deep theories that connected together sort of linguistic theory with doing implementation. And you Know in many ways there was a nice picture there that you could formalize a linguistic theory that went from words to syntax to semantics, and then you could do have an implementation component, a parser, and sort of meaning constructors. And there, there was this sort of close map between them, um, and you could describe you know grammars and meaning construction declarative ways and then build these structures with parsers, um, you know. I, you know, at the time, there's a lot of interesting stuff there that I that I really liked and worked on quite a bit. But on the other hand, there were these huge limitations, and so to mention two of them, you know, one of them was these grammars were completely um, based around you know formal um, correct grammar of the you know majority. Um, dialect sentences. And if you had a sentence that was in the completely perfect form, well, um, you could hope to parse it up and say, oh, look, this is the semantic structure um, and all was good. But, you know, they're completely inflexible reflecting this kind of um, strict logical basis. So, you know, there are all kinds of um, things that happen in the world. So, you know. Although English is normally regarded as a language, unlike many other languages where you have to say the subject um, of a sentence, um, the fact of the matter is, in conversation, um, we sometimes don't, right? So we'll. Um, I can say to you something like, seems really difficult, doesn't it? Where I've dropped the subject of the sentence. And, well, you know, as soon as you did something like that, um, well, what you got back from the systems that were built in the 80s, you know, well, it was either sort of no or does not parse or whatever. You just got nothing, right? It didn't... um, go through this logically-based reasoning system to, you know, something failed to unify or to be completed, and it was just nothing there. Um, So, um, you know, that is kind of hopeless if you're actually wanting to consider using anything for um, real human communication. But the second way in which they failed is human languages are massively ambiguous. Most of the time in conversation, um, people just don't notice the ambiguities of what people are saying. You know, every now and again, there's something that people do notice and they think it's funny or something like that. But you know, it's only the tip of the iceberg. That the vast majority of the time, um, to the hu- the human um, listener, it's just. Super obvious what the person's intending. They just understand that, and there's, there's, they never notice that there are other possible things that could have been intended. Um, but you know, there are all of the way, all sorts of ways in which. There are ambiguities in human languages. So, you know, there are part of speech um, ambiguities as to whether words uh, say nouns or verbs, right? So a lot of words in English, pretty much all nouns, really. You can turn into a verb if you want to. Um, but, you know, lots of them are commonly used both ways. So, you know, make can be a noun, a make of car or speak to make something as a verb. A cake is, can be a noun, but, you know... You can cake something on to something, right? So you get part of speech ambiguities like that, but then you get a lot more um, syntactic ambiguities. So English and the general languages are full of prepositional phrases um, like um, with a knife. Um, and whenever there are prepositional phrases in English, they're ambiguous as to what they modify. So um, that if you have a sentence um, like, I, um, bought a cake, um, with, a. What my sentence going to be, um, <laughs> if you have a sentence, like, um, you know, I bought a, a cake, um, with a wallet, um, you know, that there's one reading where the wallet is, you know, what you're using is the money for the buying transaction, Um, The other one is that the cake somehow has a wallet in the decorations on top of it or buried inside it or something like that, right? That, you know, um, that's a sort of a bit of a silly example. But, you know, syntactically, it's always ambiguous as to what it modifies. Um, another example is when you have conjunctions like and or or that in complex sentences, the scope of those conjunctions as to how much they modify is ambiguous. So, you know, the analogy I sometimes use for programmers is, right, that most programming languages, um, something like, you know, C or something like that, right, that they have this rule that when you have an else it's construed with the closest if, and if you want to have it construed with some other, um, if you have to use um, curly braces to make it clear. And you know, that's just not what Human languages are like human languages are. You know, when you see an else or when you see a prepositional phrase or a conjunction, just construe it as modifying whatever thing makes most sense. Um, and so there are all of these ambiguities, and so these ambiguities multiply in a sentence. So if you just sort of look at a formal syntactic basis and say, "Here's a fifteen-word sentence. How many syntactic parses does it have?" I mean. The answer is commonly not hundreds. The answer is, oh, it has tens of thousands. Um and well, you know, the sixties, seventies, eighties NLP technology, you know, essentially had no answer to that. Right? That if you gave it out the parser, even a sort of a pretty toy sentence of eight words, it'd just come back and say, according to the grammar, this sentence has five parsers, here they are. Um, And if you attempted to sort of feed in, you know, what's something like more typical newspaper sentence, which is commonly, you know, 25 or 30 words, well, firstly, um, it took a very long time for anything to come back at all. You know, I'd literally sometimes, if I was going to um, try and parse a sentence of 30 words on the system at Xerox Park, you know, that meant I'd go off and make coffee or have lunch or something because it takes so long to come back. But when it came back, it would come back and tell me there are thousands of parsers and there was nothing that was going to do for me aside from say, oh, I'll list them all out for you. And so... Um, Both of those problems were ones that immediately there are interesting ways to address once you had statistics and probabilities from actual data, because you could work out what was a likely structure and parse, even when the sentence isn't quite well formed grammatically. And you can work out for the different possible parses of a sentence, which one is most likely intended, even if you're sense of most likely intended is just simply oh what is most common based on the statistics in my corpus nothing really about sort of interpreting um the um discourse of the the speaker
0: yeah the there's definitely a pretty important power in having that statistical information based on a corpus that's i think actually maybe a good segue into another period of time I'd love to discuss, which is the, the 2010s. And here again, we kind of see a shift perhaps around this time and approaches where that people are using for NLP. We had the AlexNet moment very early in the 2010s, your own work started looking into neural sentiment analysis. You, um, one of your greatest hits of course, was the glove paper. You looked at attention based neural machine translation later in the decade and there's a lot of really interesting thoughts here. I know that you've spoken about um, GloVe and its main contribution as sort of establishing this um, connection between matrix factorization methods and shallow window-based methods. And there is an interesting connection, I thought, between this and the ideas of, of global and local attention in the effective approaches to neural machine translation uh, paper. And I was wondering if you could maybe speak a little bit to the symmetry of ideas there where you know global attention is sort of allowing us to look at an entire corpus or set of words um, and maybe how that maps onto what you were thinking about earlier in the glove paper.
1: Huh. Okay, I hadn't really been thinking so much of that connection, I think. But um, I can see that there is a sort of a connection there. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly an interesting thing that is part of linguistic structure. So that on the one hand, locality is really important in language. That a, A lot of what happens in language is stuff that's nearby, that the words that... You know, the words that connect together um, in syntax and meaning are normally words that are nearby. And indeed, the generally believed idea of how sentence meanings are constructed by a principle of compositionality is that people are building up from smaller units to larger units in a process that's sort of based on locality. Um, But the global view is also important and that people are picking things up from the broader context and using the broader context. And so, and that's something that's been pushed a ton in recent work. So starting off with the attention models, um, but then even more strongly in the more recent transformer architecture, which really ushered in these large language models have been so transformative. um, that Those models have then used global attention so that you can look at and Build associations, features with absolutely every word in the sentence, and you know. On the one hand, that's been incredibly useful, and is in part what human beings do—that um, that humans are following along the whole discourse and can see connections and connotations that arise over big distances. But there's another way in which it seems a little bit unhuman-like because a lot of human meaning construction seems to be happening much more locally. So, yeah, there is some sort of playoff between the global and the local. Um, Specifically for the GloVe model, I mean, the the idea there was sort of partly more rooted in history. Um, So that GloVe was preceded by the um, more famous word to vec model that had been introduced by... um, researchers working at Google, Tomas Mikhailov and colleagues the year before. Um, and it was sort of built as a local model and it produced, um, you know, quite very good results. Um, but it wasn't the first model by any means that was using distributed representations of words. And there'd there'd been an older tradition that goes back to about 1990 of the latent semantic analysis tradition, which by um, traditional um, linear algebra techniques, um, singular value decompositions, had built distributed representations of words on a global basis. One of the major uses of it was actually in information retrieval. Um, And for various reasons, at least at the time, it hadn't sort of worked nearly as well. But that contrast between local and global, and that sort of comparing those historical traditions, that was sort of most directly what led into our thinking in the Glove algorithm and wanting to sort of do something to connect those two ways of looking at things together.
0: Yeah, I suppose also, maybe moving into a slightly different topic from this, besides the I suppose, higher-level vision of global and local considerations and forming representations of, of language. Throughout the 2010s, I suppose in line with the shift that deep learning itself has taken, it seems like you explored a number of different approaches for types of neural architectures with which to approach the various problems of NLP. So you had GloVe. Um, in other senses, you were looking at tree structured neural networks. And later on, and I think you've brought this back a little bit, you looked at neurosymbolic approaches as well, in addition to some of the more traditional transformer models. Could you tell me a little bit about what that shift was looking like for you and your students in navigating this sort of parallel development of deep learning? And also trying to figure out what are the right sorts of architectures for us to tackle the problems we're interested in.
1: Sure, that'd be fun. Um, yeah, and yeah, there are different threads, and in some sense, this is a history that's still unfolding. I mean, it's been a decade or so, but I feel like we're still in the middle of it. Um, so, you know, firstly, so firstly, there was the idea of having distributed representations of words. And, you know, that was a powerful idea because rather than simply having symbols for words, and the problem is with symbols, there's sort of no natural notion of similarity, that as soon as you have distributed representations of words... You can have this multidimensional form of similarities between words, and that lets you do a lot of interesting things semantically that just weren't possible otherwise, even unless you do a lot of interesting linguistic things, because the meanings of words change over time, and you can model that much better once you've got distributed word representations, as some people, including some students working with my colleague Dan Jurafski, have looked at. Um yeah. So that that was sort of one um, sort of really interesting development that powered quite a lot of NLP research, including students that I'm working with. But there was the, then the more general idea of, well, how can we make use of neural networks um, for doing things with language? And, you know, that's something that has an older history, because there'd been an earlier boom in neural networks in the sort of 80s till around the beginning of the 90s, 92 or something, which was then referred to as the connectionist or parallel distributed processing era. And in those eras, essentially what the tool was, was a fully connected feed forward network, which normally only had one hidden layer, right? That was um, the tool that was being used. And at the time, people certainly coming from a linguistics direction, but also most of the NLP direction, felt that these models were just completely Um, inadequate. I mean, I think they even offended a lot of people. And a lot of how that was, why that was, was because they didn't have any of the structure of human language. The sort of hierarchical recursive structure of human language sentences was completely um, non-existent. Um, So starting off when... Neural networks started to be coming back into things. And, you know, I certainly wasn't the first person to do that. There was some, some earlier work before that. But for me, it seemed like the essential interesting question um, for thinking about natural language processing was how can we build good neural models of language? And I took it as axiomatic that we want to be making progress on this um, problem of how we could be capturing the recursive structure of sentences inside a neural model. And so that led us to start looking at tree-structured models. So there was still a symbolic tree backbone and then using neural distributed representations at every level of that tree. Um, And um, so, you know, in one sense, that was great because it allowed us to do a lot of interesting distinctive and good work right that at that time you know we were essentially the first group that was considering these sort of deeper linguistic questions of syntactic and semantic structure and how they could be modeled with neural networks whereas other people who'd been doing some work with language it was sort of at the level of word sequences um language models and um just word vectors and representations like that, so it um, led to you know a really strong and interestingly different um, stream of research. Um, but in another sense, um, it meant that a lot of um, the work that was being done there, you know, wasn't fundamentally different to other probabilistic machine learning work or large margin machine learning work, because, you know, we were still doing things like um, building Um, parsers and building co-reference resolution systems which had a kind of a symbolic backbone Um, the difference was that you know we were using a neural classifier rather than um, a probabilistic classifier over symbols Um, so then things started to change more and you know um, the sort of earliest Um, work doing this was done other places like Google and the University of Montreal, um, though we sort of followed quickly after that of saying, oh, maybe we could build um, neural sequence to sequence models. Um, So that was demonstrated for um, neural machine translation systems, right? And so that was just a dramatic um, technological development, right? So the very first um, work published as research for neural machine translation it was in 2014 by both the Google and Montreal groups. Um, we started doing work in that area in 2015 but you know it was already available in commercial product um, in Google Translate in 2016. and you know by 2017 and 18 everybody um, in the commercial sphere has switched over to neural machine translation because it was just so much dramatically better. Um, yeah, so that was then a second era of neural networks where people were really building these fully neural end-to-end systems, um, doing um, deeper NLP tasks, and that got people um, further again. But you know, then that was upended one more time with the development of these um, extremely large pre. Train language models. Language So language models, you can train by self-supervision. You just get a lot of text and you try and predict the next word or predict a word that you blanked out. And you can do this on enormous scale. And then it turned out that, you know, that seems like such a dumb, simple thing to do, useful for next word prediction. But at first sight, it doesn't seem like a model like that is learning everything there is to know about you know, the grammar of languages and um, about the world is learned about from language. But if you think about it more, you can sort of see how as these models get extremely large and high parameter, you can continue to do better on that task by building language models and world models that really do know stuff. So these models learn about the structure, the grammar of human languages, because it ends up being able to help them predict the next word better. And they learn about the world because that also helps you predict the next word better because you're more likely to know what a lawyer or a politician would do in different circumstances. And so then things changed around so that these enormous language models proved to be such a powerful foundation that essentially every NLP task, it didn't matter whether you want to do parsing, machine translation, co-reference resolutions, um, sentiment analysis, you ended up getting better results than any articulated model that people had built by hand by simply taking one of these um, huge language models and then fine-tuning it um, for a particular NLP
0: task. And it's pretty fascinating, I think, in some of your investigations, just looking at how these gigantic models pre-trained on a very simple task, predict the next word from a sequence of words, as you've pointed out, do pick up really interesting information about language. In fact, you had this paper, Finding Universal Grammatical Relations and Multilingual BERT, and you, I think, interrogate it with the structural probe idea And compare it to what exists in this universal dependencies taxonomy, a project I know you're very heavily involved in. And one of the findings in there that I thought was really neat was that I think you said while universal dependencies categorizes adjectives together, Ember is able to separately cluster pre-nominal adjectives, ones that come before a noun, and then post-nominal adjectives, like what you might find in, in French, for example. And it's... Very interesting just to see how you're not even imposing this linguistically inspired structure on these networks, yet they're able to do lots of cool things. I suppose to um, get us towards some wrapping up thoughts, because I want to be cognizant that we're running up against time. I also know that in some of your talks, you've declaimed this sorry state of affairs we're in, that these transformer models that don't seem to encode any of our knowledge about language seem to do so much better than these more hand-tuned methods where we're incorporating more of that information. And you've also given talks like more neural symbolic systems in which you think that we maybe need to leverage the strengths of attention-based architectures, perhaps, but but reintegrate some of this linguistic uh, knowledge. Could you speak just a little bit about that? Sure. Um,
1: yeah, so, I mean, I'm not sad... That we're showing that these sort of very general, powerful models with fairly little inbuilt structure can learn a lot of linguistic structure. I mean, with my linguist hat on, I actually think that's absolutely fascinating and powerful, and is in something that's sort of interesting from a linguistic perspective because, you know. Um, little human kids learning language, right? You know, they're not being show- shown grammar textbooks, they're not being shown the structure of sentences. It's not that someone's sitting down to, and trying to explain to them how to construct a, the meaning of a sentence by working out the, the main verb and here's the subject and here's the object, right? They're just hearing a lot of linguistic input in a rich context and that they're figuring it out. So the fact that we're now at last able to build um, computer systems that can do the same, I think that's fascinating, powerful. It actually harkens back to, you know, before the rise of Noam Chomsky, um, American structuralist linguists, you know, one of their goals was to to seek linguistic structure discovery devices. I mean, they didn't really have much idea of how to do this because, you know, this was um, really back in the 40s, 50s, before anything like modern machine learning existed. But you know, that that was a stated goal, and I think you know we're starting to see some ability to do that. Um, so I actually think that's fascinating. But I don't think we're um, yet at the end of the journey, right? Um, the Transformer model has proven to be just hugely successful, right? It's, it's so powerful and effective that it's kind of become the model for almost everything, not only um, in language now, but increasingly transformers being exported out and we have vision transformers and transformers for genomics and um, we'll start having transformers doing robotics too, I think. Um, But, you know, in one sense, it's a really great model and it's extremely powerful. But in another sense, it's a very weak model in terms of its um, inductive biases or priors, right? That a starting off position is Anything could depend on anything. Let's just try and calculate associations between any two things that's with its attention operations. And let's see which ones seem to be true. And um, we'll sort of build from there and start to learn stuff. And it's partly because of the weakness of that model in terms of priors that you need a huge amount of data um, to get anywhere. Um, And so I think we should still be looking for models with stronger inductive biases so they're able to learn and adapt much better on more limited amounts of linguistic input. And the the challenge then is how to get the right amount of flexibility with the right amount of Inductive bias, you know. I think the kind of tree structured models that we were doing um, in the early 2010s, in retrospect, they clearly have too much rigidity um, and don't have the flexibility of transformers. But I still think when too much right at the other end of the spectrum and somehow there must be a middle ground that's even better um, though you know it hasn't been trivial to find that um, clearly still till 2022 transformers are just the best thing out there basically
0: yeah the the inductive priors question is a really fascinating one and i think as you said one that we'll really need to keep digging into going into the future Just maybe being conscious of time again, um, if I can ask one final question. Sure. This is maybe just about your perspectives on research more broadly. There's there's a talk in which Richard Hamming said one of the characteristics of successful scientists is having courage. And specifically, I think he's speaking about the courage to work on important problems. And he speaks of the most successful researchers as well really being capable of asking themselves, what are the important problems in my field? And you, Chris, are somebody who has navigated multiple paradigm shifts in your field, probably one of the most successful NLP researchers by many lights. How do you think about the role of courage in your own research career and about finding important problems?
1: Well, it's clearly good to work on important problems that people will find interesting, it'll have impact. But I mean, for me in particular, in terms of courage, I think the way I've really benefited is from having the courage to jump into new things. So that really, the two biggest things that propelled my career forward was, you know, when I was a grad student in linguistics at Stanford, well, you know, in a sort of a traditional linguistics program where people were learning uh, symbolic structures of language effectively, well, I saw what was starting to happen um, with people doing empirical corpus-based work and learning stuff from a lot of text, And this seemed really different and really exciting, and as if that could sort of solve some of the big problems and lead to interesting new work. And so I jumped into that with both feet, and that sort of led to a series of work and then producing um, my first textbook, The Foundations of Statistical NLP. um, Mm It came out in 1999, but really, um, that was the result of a four-year process of, oh, gee, I really need to learn a whole bunch of stuff to start doing this different thing, which, you know, wasn't what I'd been doing as an undergrad or in my grad school classes. And, you know, so, you know, I wasn't the first person in that area, but I was pretty early. And so that then led to, you know, enormous success as um, one of the... um, strong people of the statistical NLP or probabilistic NLP era. Um, But then um, starting in 2010, you know, again, I wasn't the first person. Jeff Hinton, Yoshua Bengio, Jan LeCun um, had been um, doing things um, earlier, but it was still extremely early in those days, right? You know, when there were the sort of early deep learning workshops um, that I started going to in 2010, you know, 30, 40 people showed up there. You know, there were there was just, and that was you know everything: vision, um, machine learning. You know, there were sort of two NLP people there, right? Um, that you know, it was still very early, but you know, um, starting to see the power of distributed representations and the ability to do back propagation based optimization, that seemed like really powerful new ideas that would allow you to solve interesting different problems that weren't the problems that are currently being solved in natural language processing. And so, again, what I did was jumped in with both feet that I, you know, started reading all of those papers, um, learning a lot about it, you know, it wasn't my original background, you know, these were all, you know, this is um, lifelong learning, as they say, you know, these were all things that I was picking up, um, going along and starting to sort of do research and teach about that. And, you know, again, you know, I got in there early. And, you know, I sort of, you know, in some sense, feel lucky, right, that I, I sort of feel in a way that, You know, these days in the 2020s, the graduate students are having to do, you know, really complex stuff with big models, with difficult math to come up with something original. Whereas, you know, when I started doing things in the early 2010s, it was pretty easy stuff. Um, But, you know, because it was early and I'd sort of gotten into it early, you know, all of that early work was then sort of super impactful, um, super you know, well cited, tons of follow up. Um, And so, you know, the kind of courage that's really benefited me is combining, you know, having a good spidey sense out of where is something exciting and potentially impactful happening, and then saying, Oh, this looks like it could really go places. Um, Let me just abandon where I was before and jump into doing that. And that's really worked for me.
0: Yeah, there, there definitely is an exploration versus exploitation question, I suppose, and it, it does seem like sometimes diving into that really new thing that seems totally weird, but could be very cool, can often generate massive dividends. Well, I do think this is a, a perfect place to end, but Chris, thank you so much for your time. It was really wonderful speaking to you and an honor. Um, so thank you again. Well, thanks a lot, Daniel. It's been really fun having this conversation. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about the gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.